Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Thanks, Nick. Uh, like you said, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant, uh, and I love that I get to uh, work with uh, some of our volunteer teams uh, who are all thinking about connection and insisting every morning, whether here in the building or online, um, that we make it really easy to get connected around here. Um, and so I love that I get to do that. Um, but while most of my time is spent wearing that hat on here at the church, um, it's my job, I also get to volunteer some of my time uh, with my wife on the campus of BGSU, working with college students and college ministry um, with crew. And that's really, really fun. I love that I get to join her in her full-time passion of joining college students in their transitional season of life uh, and faith. That's fun for me to get to do that. Uh, We actually started that journey together. Uh, we We were joining crew together. And so that was kind of fun. Um, it's what brought us to Bowling Green in the first place as a married couple. Um, and uh, in fact, <laughs> if you've known us for longer than a couple of years and uh, you're not a crew student yourself, we've probably sat at your kitchen table and told you all about how passionate we are about college ministry um, and even invited you to participate in that ministry with us um, through financial giving uh, to even make it possible for us to spend the best of our working hours every single day building relationships with college students and investing in them. Um, As you might imagine, it took quite a bit of talking (laughs) to get to the point where we had enough people on board, uh, financially speaking, to make that a possibility. took a long time, actually, for us, uh, so that we could do what we feel called to do, um, and it definitely wasn't easy, uh, to be quite frank. Uh, there were definitely times we felt completely crazy. What, why are we doing this? I actually, I was working as a band director, and I stopped and said, let's go do this instead, and I felt at times, why did I do that? Because uh, <laughs> it, it felt crazy, well, like we made a big mistake. Sometimes we felt alone. Like, does anyone actually care about this mission that we're excited about, or do they just feel bad for us? Um, that's, that's what we felt like, and it was hard, especially when, like, weeks or even months sometimes went by when we didn't make any progress, um, but the rent was still coming through, so it, it, was, it was tough. It was a tough season. We'll talk a little bit more. I'll bring that back up again later. Um, but actually, we'd both say that it was worth it. It was, a, it was actually a, a good season of our life that we wouldn't take back. Uh, we saw God really at work in super intimate ways in our life during that season. Um, he showed up in really surprising ways in our life during that season, uh, and we, we wouldn't give it back. Um, but we felt some things. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't easy. But that was a path that we chose. We chose to do that. We chose to walk through that. And I know that there are a lot of us this morning, uh, if you're hearing my voice, that you're walking through maybe a season that you didn't choose, uh, and it's tough. 
Today, this morning, we're going to actually read a brief story about an Arab woman and her Jewish mother-in-law who find themselves in a pretty tough season of life that they didn't choose either. But a little bit like us, they still in that season found God chasing them in intimate and surprising ways. And as we will see, because God is always writing a bigger story, our stories are never without hope. And so, what we'll be reading is a small part, just a specific chunk of the book of Ruth. You might be familiar with it, you might not know it exists. It's a very short story, comparatively speaking, in the Bible. It's only three pages in mine. <laughs> so, if, if you didn't know it was there, you might miss it just flipping through, because it's, whoop, there it goes. Um, and, but it's a beautiful story of hope. It's in the Old Testament, and it's right in the middle, actually, of some deeply disturbing stories in the book of Judges um, during a time when Israel is pretty much in chaos. Uh, there's a lot of weird things going on, and they need a king to kind of bring order to that chaos, but they don't have one yet. Uh, and that's where this book kind of drops right in the middle of it. We're going to do a quick flyover of the book, uh, but I would encourage you to read the whole thing yourself because it really is an encouraging story um, for our faith. The book starts off really kind of showing the misery of this time. Um, when there's, like I said, it's disturbing what's going on around during this time. And so they zoom in, this book zooms in on a specific family. When a husband and his wife and their sons leave Bethlehem. Hey, we know that one, right? <laughs> this time of year. They leave Bethlehem where they live and they go to a foreign land. The sons, the two sons, they get married and then all the men die in the family. Whoa. And it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible for the women right there. They're left without a male relative to care for them, which is a huge deal in this culture because not only in this society do they not have land or jobs, but they can't have land or jobs. Not because they're not able to, but that's, they're not allowed to. Uh, that's, that's not how the culture works. So the women pick up they pick up 10 years of their lives, and they move back to Bethlehem. Uh, the mother-in-law uh, tells her daughters-in-law, you, got, you just need to go. It will be better for you if you just start over. Go get remarried or something, because I can't care for you. One daughter-in-law, Ruth, actually clings to her mother-in-law to no benefit of her own whatsoever. There's no reason she would do that. Uh, and... The mother-in-law is like, well, suit yourself. And kind of begrudgingly accepts. But she's just done, the mother-in-law. She's done with life and done with God, for that matter, because in her circumstances, it seems like he doesn't care. It actually has a really good ending, the whole story, if you can believe it. Uh, it's a beautiful ending. Ruth becomes remarried, thanks in large part to the honorable character of a relative, a distant relative. Hope is restored to both Ruth and her mother-in-law in their community. Uh, and we find out, this is really cool, that Ruth, once she's married, she has a child. And this child is the next child in the family tree of Jesus. And you, will, you can read, you'll find Ruth's name and their child's name in the very first page of the New Testament. It's pretty crazy. So that's the story. 
But today, we're going to zoom in specifically into one part of the story, right at the beginning when they, they just relocated, um, before there's any signs of hope whatsoever. It's just, just their broken story. Um, and, this, and we're going to see kind of the first glimmers of the hope and what happens. How do they go from this hopeless place to, wow, I, there's hope in our story. So Ruth finds herself in a field. She's looking for food because, well, we got to eat. And so she's, she's out in the field. She's looking for food, gathering some grain among others who are doing the same. When the landowner, uh, whose name is Boaz, sees her, he kind of asks somebody, hey, who's the new girl over here? And then approaches her and starts a really shocking conversation and interaction with Ruth. And so we'll begin reading in Ruth chapter 2, verse number 8. We'll have it here on the screens. Boaz went over to Ruth and said, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field that they're harvesting and follow them. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly, and when you're thirsty, help yourself to the water that they've drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. But I also know about everything that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I, I've heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you've done. I, I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I am not one of your workers. At mealtime, Boaz called to her, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters, and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all that she wanted and still had some left over. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her. And while you're at it, just pull some of them out and drop them on the ground on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley there all day, and when she had beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. She carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain, the leftovers from her meal. Where did you gather all this grain today, Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law all about the man in whose field she had worked. She said, his name's Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. You may have heard it said, it's all in the details. And if you think about it, it's kind of true. Take a, a book, for example. A, a, a book is one thing, right? But it's more than that. It's made up of chapters, and the chapters... They have stories in them, and each story is kind of a combination of moments, and you could keep going with, and, and they're made up of words, and the words are made up, you get it, right? It's all in the details. Details add up to the bigger thing. If we stick with a story, a story is more than just a beginning chunk, a middle chunk, and an end chunk. There's got to be, like, character development and time for it to all happen and moments that 
that weave the whole thing together. It's why sometimes dreams can be hard to explain. We've all done it. We've all had this experience. It makes sense in our brain. We want to tell somebody about it. And the second you start to tell somebody about it, it doesn't make sense anymore. Because it's missing details. Oh, yeah, I was... So here's what, it, here's what was happening. I, I walked through a door, and then when we were driving off the cliff... Wait, how did we get from the... I, I, don't, I don't know. Don't, don't listen to me. We've done that. We've experienced that. Because life needs the details to move the story along. Life needs those details. Scripture would say that God is eternal. He was and he is and he is to come. And yet, the often tragic but somehow beautiful story of our world, in the middle of that, it's made up of centuries and decades and years. Yes, even years like 2020. And the story of Ruth stands in the middle of Israel's story, to say that while God is eternal, that he is right in the middle of the details, of the hunger pains and the lingering loss and the uncertainty of, am I going to make it to tomorrow? What will tomorrow hold? Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, has given up. But Ruth holds on to hope. It's not much hope. She's still hurting too, but at least let's just get some dinner. Now, in this part of the story that we read, this specific chunk, we understand she's gathering grain. That's what, that's what it said. But some other versions you might read will use the word gleaning. Ruth was gleaning. Uh, and while we didn't use that word in our version, it's an important concept because there's more behind that culturally. Uh, it's more than just she went to a field and she was picking up some grain. And I think it's worth double-clicking on because there's, I think, some really beautiful pieces of it. So, really quick, in addition to the Ten Commandments, the nation of Israel has all sorts of these bonus codes, so to speak, that help them to, as individuals and as a nation, live a holy life, be a, become a holy people. They're kind of like guideposts. One of these bonus codes, mentioned in a couple different places, has specific instructions for landowners in this agrarian farmer society that when they harvest their fields to leave the corners, the edges of their fields untouched, and after they make their first pass, not to go back through again and pick up what they missed. All of that as a specific provision for the poor. So the poor can come and they can glean from the field, pick up what's left. Why is that important? Well, for one, because it's common. So Ruth's not doing something strange by going to this field and seeing what she can grab. It's a thing. People, other people are doing it too. And two, for her to partake in the gleaning process is to identify with the poor. And there's nothing wrong with that. Just like there's nothing wrong with, if you need to go to the food pantry and get some food, do it. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But if you're not used to it, it's a humbling experience. And in this society specifically, it's in front of everybody. Everyone's seeing it. There's no secret, let me grab and go. It's everyone's watching. And so you wonder, what are people thinking of you? She's just looking for scraps, and I can only imagine that she feels honorable, like I'm doing what we need to do to, to get by. 
But at the same time, gosh, I wish I didn't have to pick up scraps while everybody watched me. When you imagine the eyes on your back, it's easy to believe what you think they might be assuming of you and begin believing that about yourself. And gleaning's not a risk-free process either. There's pushing and there's shoving and abuse. Boaz alludes to that when he's telling the guys, leave her alone. I can assume some of Ruth's experience because I know that that's how Jenny and I felt uh, when, when we were raising up our team of financial partners so that we could work on campus with crew. We felt like we were doing what we were called to do. This is what we're doing. But boy, I wish I didn't have to ask for the margins of people's budget to do it. What do they think of us? What are they assuming about us? And is it true? Are we really worthy of people's disposable income? I wish the dollar signs and the rent weren't necessary details of the larger story of our lives, but they are. And there are moments, such as in our story, like the first day that we reported with the rest of the crew staff at BGSU, where we were given reminders that those details are not forgotten. We, that day, the first day, we still actually had a couple hundred dollars of monthly commitments left to go before we could reach our 100%, but we were just kind of getting started because we thought that that might happen soon. On our way out the door, we got a phone call from a partner couple, a married couple, who had already committed $100 a month towards our ministry. They left a message, and they said, hey, we were talking about you, and we really believe in what you're doing. We thought we would just increase our commitment another $200 a month. They're already giving $100 a month, and 200 was the exact amount that we needed to reach that 100%. In that moment, we felt joy. We felt hope and absolutely seen by God that he didn't forget that we still needed that much. Enter Boaz. He sees Ruth. He's heard about her story. He sees her honorable heart, and he makes sure that she knows she's seen. That she's worthy of more than scraps. With that gleaning code, all it says is leave the edges, right? How wide's an edge? It doesn't say that. I think what Boaz understands is that he's not just getting it right, checking the box sort of a deal. He sees the, the law, the code. He sees the heart of it, and he sees it saying, feed the poor, not just leave the acceptable amount. And he does that. He feeds her. And it creates this turning point in the story of Ruth and her mother-in-law where they feel joy and hope and like the details of their lives are not forgotten by God. And ultimately, through the eyes of Boaz, I really do think that what Ruth and her mother-in-law see is the eternal God showing up in the middle of the details saying, I see you. You are enough, and you're worthy of more than scraps. 
I actually love the ambiguity, depending on what version you read, of verse number 20. Verse number 20, after Ruth comes home, she's explaining all that happened to her mother-in-law, and Naomi says, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. Who's he? Is it God or is it Boaz? And again, depending on which version you read, it's, it's easier to pick out than others, but I think it's okay to assume that the answer is yes. <laughs> that through Boaz, they saw that God had not forgotten them. He's not stopped chasing them with his love and his care. Ruth and Naomi are renewed with hope because they're beginning to see for themselves that God has not stopped writing his story, and therefore their story and all of its details are not without hope. You might not know this about me, but actually my favorite Sunday afternoon go-to thing is a NASCAR race, cheering on my favorite driver, Chase Elliott. This sometimes surprises people uh, because I've been told I don't fit the stereotype of a NASCAR fan. I don't really know what they mean by that, but um, we know. It's my favorite thing to do. I'm actually, I, I think I've said this before, I'm actually the first on my dad's side of the family for, from four generations not to be a mechanic or actually race a car myself. <laughs> and so it's part of my legacy. So I chase on Chase, I chase on, I cheer on Chase Elliott, and it's even more fun to cheer on him specifically because his dad, Bill Elliott, was a NASCAR driver in the 80s and the 90s and a favorite driver of all three of the paternal generations before me. So it's like, I'm just like continuing the thing, you know? This fall, I'm going to geek out for a second, Chase Elliott won the championship. He won! And I was stoked. I was so pumped. And he, he, he made his way through the playoffs. He was winning races, and he did like the burnout of all burnouts, you know, and there's smoke everywhere. And suddenly I got all these email confirmations about all the championship memorabilia that I had ordered somewhere in the middle of the burnout, and I didn't know what was happening, but I did it because that's what you're supposed to do. And boom, I'm celebrating. And so the interviews are commencing on TV, and I, I, I got to call my dad. I, I know he's got to be watching this, right? So I call my dad, and he picks up the phone, and I don't even know what to say. I'm just pumped. And so kind of like a, I'm just like all hyped up on Mountain Dew or something. He picks up the phone, and I go, whoa! And I'm sure he's like, what? I, I was just excited. And we began to talk about how cool this was, and all the different things that it represented. And we'd been cheering him on for ever since he got up to the cup level. Then, Bill Elliott, Chase's dad, makes his way from the stands onto the racetrack. He cuts through all the media and the, everything. He finds his son, and they hug. And I'm on the phone with my dad. <laughs> And we're seeing this happen, and my dad goes with a lump in his throat. Well, that's pretty cool. And then my throat gets all lumpy, and my eyes are filled with tears, and why am I crying? <laughs> this is a NASCAR race. I didn't win anything. But somehow, on the phone with my dad, and a father and son are hugging, and it was all very real. Why was that so emotional for me? There's a lot of things going on, obviously. But I do think one major part of what I experienced in that moment was 
connection. As I even get still used to a newer part of adulthood where I don't see my dad every day uh, in a pandemic when we all just generally feel disconnected and alone, in that moment, I knew my dad was watching with me and we were experiencing something together. And I felt connected. For a moment, I realized I'm not alone. My dad's in this with me. This is pretty cool. And emotions. It's a little bit like what happens when a group of people watch fireworks together. Sorry to keep bringing up things that didn't happen in 2020, but (laughs) when we're all watching, it's and you, we all just kind of feel connected. Like we're not, it's like you could, you could start a conversation during fireworks. I mean, maybe after fireworks, so you're not interrupting, but you could start a conversation with anybody and you're just like, isn't this great, right? We all just feel connected. Like we're not in the world alone. So if God is present in our day-to-day lives, I propose that our presence, our day-to-day presence is actually an incredible gift that we can offer someone else. If God is present in our day-to-day, then our day-to-day presence is an incredible gift that we can offer. Come back to the ancient grain fields of Bethlehem with me. Ruth, aside from her mother-in-law, is completely alone. She's a foreigner. She's actually a different race, even. So it's obvious, oh, who's the new girl? That's very real. And Boaz offers this relational tether to her. He says, don't go to another field. You're with me. But it's still hard work, what she's doing. She's still working, and when it's time to break at mealtime, Boaz doesn't just give her food to eat, which he didn't have to do at all, really. He's already allowing her to glean. He doesn't just give her food to eat. He says, come here and eat. Boaz offers an incredible gift of his proximity, his presence, and a connection to Ruth that Naomi and Ruth both saw very clearly as a connection and a presence with God that they weren't sure existed anymore. This shows up all over in my life. It's why I find my work with the Connect Team volunteers so meaningful. It's what they do. (laughs) The Connect Team volunteers offer their time and their attention so that nobody walks through our doors or shows up online without knowing you are not alone. Another place this shows up is actually why I like writing our regular prayer letters to our crew partners. Everyone that said yes, and they're, they're in this with us, with our ministry on campus. In the smallest of ways, we get to be present in their lives regularly and to showcase how their support allows us to be present in the lives of college students. And it's absolutely why I will be a puddle of tears in about a month when our firstborn child is born. Yeah. We have a baby now. I see the pictures, you know, the ultrasound things. The baby's there. And I see the foot, like, kicking through the side of Jenny's belly. Like, the baby exists, but when the baby's born, there will be, I will see the face. We will be face-to-face, and I will be, I actually don't know how I'm talking right now. (laughs) I will be a puddle. I just know it. Baby's presence will be fully realized, and it will be what Scott Erickson calls a breaking experience. 
as in the involuntary breaking down of my everything's fine sort of demeanor. (laughs) I'll just lose it. He goes on to say, to finally see what you have hoped for for so long is a breaking experience. And our deepest hope is that God is truly with us in all of it. Our deepest hope is that God is truly with us in all this. Ruth and Naomi longed in the middle of their suffering to know that God is with them in all of it. And because Boaz offered the incredible gift of his presence, it's like a light was flipped on for them. And for us, well, that sounds a little bit like uh, the holiday we just celebrated, right? God with us. Ruth and Naomi had Boaz as a representative of the presence of God in their lives. We stand on the other side of the cross when God himself came to prove once and for all that he is with us. And he's in us. So you and I are actually more than representatives. Jesus came as a human to show that he doesn't just understand the day-to-day details of life. He's lived it. He's been here. He really gets it. And at the same time, he is the eternal God who was and is and is yet to come, and he's writing the beautiful story of eternity with the day-to-day details of our lives. I know if you're hearing my voice that there are stories in your life that I can't pretend to understand. I don't even pretend to understand what Ruth's going through. I've never been through that. And I don't know what your story is on this last Sunday of 2020. Whether it's big or small, public or very, very private, everyone is in a battle. Everyone is facing something. And whatever your story, what some of you need today is to simply let the eyes of Boaz and ultimately the eyes of Jesus to see you and say, your story isn't over and you are not alone. And I can't tell you if maybe this is you, but for some of you, you know that there's someone in your life that God has asked you to be the simple reminder that they are not alone in their story. You can bring the gift of your presence and ultimately the presence of Jesus right into the middle of their daily life. Because if God is really involved in our day-to-day stories, then we have hope. And we are daily invited to participate in his eternal story. Would you pray with me? Jesus, be with us. Thank you for the gift of your presence in every detail, both big and small. Thank you that we are seen and we are both recipients and participants in the biggest, most beautiful story of eternity that you are writing in and through our lives. Lord, I confess, sometimes I look at the details of my life and I doubt that you're really involved. Help us to believe that you are truly in the details of our lives with us. And help us to be ready to give someone else the reminder that they, may, they might need to. 
Jesus is in your name that we pray. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.